Welcome to the podcast, today's Voices of Conservation Science from Montana State University in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. We are here in Studio 300 Lewis, and I'm Chris Guy, your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Today I'm here with Matea Jokic, and she is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. I got that last name right. Yes, yes, yes. you did. Okay, good job. Matea, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. So uh, did you have a busy day? Yeah, pretty busy. Yeah. I uh, worked a lot. I taught four hours in a row before coming here and then proctored an exam before that and was in my own class that I'm taking before that. That's the life of a graduate student at Montana State University. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Hard work. So teaching the masses and then also um, learning yourself. Yep. Yeah, that's good. So, Matea, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I was born in Sydney, Australia, but my parents are not Australian. Um, <laughs> my mom is actually from Japan, and my dad is actually from Croatia, so they both immigrated to the United States at different times. Um, mm-hmm. My mom immigrated when she was like eight, I want to say, and then went to grad school in the Netherlands where she met my dad. And then my dad moved to the States for grad school and when my parents got married. And then so they've been in the States since then. And my dad had a teaching position at the University of New South Wales when I was born. And then they moved back to the States just after that. So where did you spend most of your time uh, uh, in the States once you moved here? Southern California. Okay. Redlands. Redlands. Yeah. So um, help me with that. Is that near San Diego? It's between LA and Palm Springs. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, some nice weather. Yes. I miss the weather. Yeah. It gets really hot and I never thought I would say that I missed triple digit heat, but I do. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, and the one thing I miss living in Montana is the evenings where you could be outside with in just like a shorts and a T-shirt on, and you're warm. That doesn't happen in Montana. You always have to have a jacket. Yeah. Seems like. Yep. And I, I, gosh, I used to as a kid, we'd go outside late and then have um, a barbecue or something Mm -hmm. and we'd be swimming in the pool and it'd be 8 PM and you could stay in the pool and you weren't going to freeze to death. (laughs) And then you get out and you'd be cold. Right. And then I moved here and I realized what it actually meant to be cold. Yes. Yeah. So how many languages do you know? Um, I know English (laughs) and then um, I learned Spanish in college. UC San Diego had a requirement at least within my college, that we had to take four quarters of a language. So I took Spanish. And I would say that I was pretty proficient before I left California. And I was able to talk about my views on politics and Spanish and describe like non-tangible things. So now I don't think I have that as much. Um, and then I studied abroad in Croatia for one summer And I did not get very good at speaking Croatian because many people wanted to practice their English with me. And I know a little bit Japanese, like what my mom would say to me. So if we're at the store and she wants to tell me something's expensive but not offend someone, I can understand things like that. (laughs) That's great. So you mentioned a little bit of your academic background. Can you fill us in on that? Where did you get your bachelor's degree and, and what was the degree in? 
So I got my bachelor's degree. It was a bachelor's of science um, at the University of California, San Diego, and it was in cognitive psychology. So you you um, got a degree in cognitive psychology, but now you're here in um, the Department of Ecology and, and, and working on fish. So I'm curious how you made that leap from cognitive psychology or that degree and what got you interested in, in kind of the conservation de- position you're in now. Yeah, so it was kind of a roundabout way of getting here. My junior year, I was given the opportunity to volunteer in a physiology lab at the medical school, and we were studying hypoxia and the effects of high altitude in humans. And after doing research there for, I think, about a year, um, they let me go to the International Hypoxia Symposium in Banff. And so I got to, that was actually my first conference that I went to, and they presented this uh, session on comparative models. And I was very interested and they were generally all fish or all birds. And so after that, I thought, oh, I don't think I want to do psych anymore. I kind of want to go into comparative physiology. And so that piqued my interest. And then following that experience, I started orienting myself towards a more animal um, research area. And then I worked in South Dakota for six months after I graduated from undergrad. And I just I kind of changed my mind from comparative physiology to maybe uh, ecology and fisheries management because mm-hmm. that was the internship that I was working with and I really enjoyed it. So then I applied out here. So you went from Southern California to South Dakota yep. for an internship. Yep. That's, that's very bold and brave. What, what drove you to do that? Uh, so my dad works for Esri and they do GIS work and he was working with the guys out of Pier, South Dakota and game fish and parks. And he had been telling me how, um, I guess my, my bosses, Mm -hmm. uh, were telling him how great the internship program is and how fun it is and how much fun they have with the interns. And so my dad was like, Oh, you want to get involved with fish, but you've never touched fish before. So you have to start somewhere, maybe, you know, this job in South Dakota. And I applied, I also applied to several other animal jobs Mm -hmm. that I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And uh, they were the only people who took a chance on me, (laughs) someone coming from California with a psych degree. And I think it was, it was an incredible opportunity. Yeah, that's great. Um, Yeah. I've spent a lot of time in South Dakota and Pierre and yeah, that's a great place. Good, good folks. Yeah. Yeah. So curious who or what may have been instrumental in getting you interested in conservation, maybe before the, uh, the the kind of a um, light bulb event when you were doing that comparative physiology work, but before that, maybe when you were younger, was there an individual that, that, or, or something that you experienced that got you interested in conservation? Yeah, I don't know that I would say it was a specific individual versus like a series of events when I was a kid. Um, In kindergarten, we had the opportunity to raise, I think it was rainbow trout in our like classroom aquarium. And then we paired up with the third graders who were our study buddies. And I picked my brother, of course, (laughs) to his chagrin. And um, we went and released them into a river. And then we repeated that process once we were in third grade as the older kids. And then in fifth grade, they took us to Catalina Island off the coast of California, 
and we were able to go snorkeling and hiking and do all of this stuff outdoors that I didn't necessarily, not that I didn't have a chance to do it when I was a kid, but my family was more focused on like playing sports and, you know, getting us to hockey practices and hockey games. So it was kind of my first introduction to like biology firsthand in front of my face and picking up starfish and looking at Garibaldi in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, in seventh grade, we went to, or eighth grade, actually, we went to Catalina Island and I, each one of us was given a person in history who we were then supposed to reenact throughout the entire trip. And we were on a sail ship and I was a scientist and so I was supposed to go out into the tide pools and find new species of animals. And it <laughs> That's was great. Yeah, it was great. It was that so is, much fun. Yeah. And since then, I feel like Catalina has been kind of like one of those. Not like a. it's not like every day I think of Catalina, but often when I think about like, oh, a really great trip that I went on, it was backpacking the island when I was in my 20s. It was being there when I was in middle school, being there in elementary school. And I realized that that may have been one of the catalysts to get me interested in being outdoors. Just some foundational experiences that then when you had the opportunity in the, you know, the comparative physiology lab and then South Dakota, it all started putting the pieces together. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know you could have a job where you could actually go out on a boat and have (laughs) fun. That's very cool. So, um, you know, to get to this point, there's often some hurdles, you know, um, that, that we have to jump over to, to get where you're at. Have you experienced any hurdles that you would like to share with the listeners about, you know, what it took to get to where you are today? Yeah, I don't know that I would, they may be viewed as hurdles, but I don't necessarily know if I view them as hurdles. It was just Mm -hmm. because I took such a roundabout way to get to where I am. I often think that people had to take chances on me. Like I said earlier with game fish and parks in South Dakota, they had to kind of take a leap of faith to say, yeah, we'll take you on as an intern. And I don't know that that was necessarily bad because I think it, it led me to people who are really good people who have kind of like this faith in me without having met me that I would be able to do this, like job that's out of the realm or the scope of what I've been trained in. Right. So, so it also kind of plays into somebody giving you a chance. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and we've interviewed a a lot of folks on this podcast and you know, they're, they're, that's a common theme. Somebody is given somebody a chance to, to shine and then they keep moving forward from there. Yeah. And that's something that I try and think about in my position here is, you know, you know, giving somebody a chance, they might not have all the the pedigree, so to speak, that some people have, but there's something about them that, you know, let's give them a chance. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with that. You're listening to today's voices of conservation science. And I'm here with Matea Jokic and she is a graduate student at Montana state university in the department of ecology. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the research that you're working on. Um, What are you doing? So I'm working on expanding uh, the non-lethal tools that are currently available to fishery managers to assess the status of the endangered pallid sturgeon. And so just to think about this for just a second, what do you mean by 
tools. I think everybody knows what non-lethal means, but just thinking about tools, I think most people might think of like a screwdriver or a hammer and things like that. What do you mean by these tools? Um, I often think about it uh, similar to when you go to the doctor and they're taking your height and your weight and your blood pressure and all of these metrics to then give them a little bit of insight into how you're doing um, health-wise. And right now, uh, fisheries managers are pretty limited with the tools that they do have available for endangered species, especially to length and weight, which as you can see in humans is often not actually indicative of how healthy they are because you could have a short bodybuilder who looks according to BMI, like they're very unhealthy, but right. they've got a bunch of muscle and that's why they're heavier. Oh, that's very interesting. And yeah, to think about that and in terms of the, the health, if you will, of fish or, or mammals or anything like that, trying to get a better understanding of their status other than the things that we typically, typically measure. Yeah. Yeah. And so why is, so, so why is this important to have this tool kit? Um, they're important in that they are offering another dimension to the picture. So right now with length and weight, we can see potentially even just a point on a line. We don't see the full picture of the line or the entire 3d image that we're trying to look at. So mm -hmm. we, need more tools that assess things like the physiological um, metrics of a fish to be able to understand the overall health and then the overall status of a population. So are they healthy? Are they doing well? We can't really measure that very well with um, growth rate or with population density. Mm -hmm. So then you would tie, and, and then and this is beyond your scope, I, I believe, then they would tie maybe the, uh, the health measurements that, that they obtain from the tools that you recommend to management actions, for example. Yes. You know, how much water they release from a reservoir or temperature or some type of habitat yes. manipulations. And they could use your tools to, to look at the health status of those fish and see if they're doing good or, or not so good. Exactly. Yeah. That's very cool. So, um, so, can you dive into a little bit more about what some of these tools might be? Yeah. So I, I think my favorite tool would be the um, distal fat meter. <laughs> and maybe that's just because it's called a fat meter. I love the fat meter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're, we're using that hopefully to um, estimate the whole body lipid content and the whole body energy content of a fish, which those two variables are important for survival of the fish in the wild. And currently, um, the only way to determine that is through proximate analysis, which is a lethal um, method in which we have to kill the fish. Yeah, and we don't want to be doing that with endangered species. No. No. <laughs> and so that, that's probably my favorite tool. Mm -hmm. And then. So just thinking about that and, and your, um, I guess it was your analogy earlier, can fish be too fat? Yes, fish okay. can be too fat. Okay. Similar to people yeah. being too fat, I and, think. And, and that might be unhealthy for yeah. fish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious about that because a lot of times we think about fish and everybody wants to catch the biggest, heaviest fish, but it might be that that fish isn't in the best health. Yes, yeah. exactly. Just like people. Okay. Interesting. And then another tool? Um, another tool that we're looking at uh, would be blood analytes. So we're taking blood from our fish 
And so it is rather, it's invasive in that we need to poke the fish with a needle, but it's not lethal. We can return the fish back to the river and it will survive. Right. Um, and we're looking at different analytes that exist in the blood that change based on um, physiolog- physiolog- physiological changes <laughs> um, such as uh, nutritional status or tissue damage or chronic stress. Mm-hmm. And then you might then do you, because it sounds like the fat meter is just this really simple tool to use, then would you try and co- correlate factors from the blood to the fat, fat meter? So somebody could just go out with a fat meter and get the, you know, maybe the same measure, um, same idea that they would get from the blood analytes. Um, I'm not sure that we would be able to get the whole picture with mm-hmm. just the fat meter, similar to how we aren't able to get the whole picture with just growth rate or um, just population density. But I think paired with the blood analytes, we would be able to find variables that correlate with um, each other in among individual variation um, to indicate the status of the fish. Mm-hmm. Very neat. Have you um, Have you done any of this work to date? Um, so I have actually gone out into the field and had one field season mm-hmm. where we did take blood and we did do fat meter measurements on wild caught fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on the Missouri and also the Yellowstone river doing that. And in addition to that, I've just completed my, uh, sampling, my lethal sampling of a cohort of fish, laboratory raised fish mm-hmm. or hatchery raised fish, I should say at the uh, Bozeman Fish Technology Center, where we did take um, blood, fat meter, we did do visual health or like a visual assessment of their health, um, in addition to lethally sampling them to run proximate analysis on them. So you can, by doing that, they're hatchery raised fish and you have to do that to calibrate some of these metrics, right? Yes, Yes. exactly. Um, Kind of exciting to be out on the river and catch a uh, one of the wild pallid sturgeon out there. Yeah. And yeah. I was lucky enough to help do brood stock. Oh, that's fun yeah. too. So yeah. we got, I think one, actually, I don't think we caught a female, but we okay. had male so that were wild and that was pretty exciting. Yeah, they're, they're very impressive fish. So you've touched on it a little bit, but just if you could elaborate a little bit more on why this research is important. Yeah. So we right now as fisheries managers are limited in being able to assess uh, populations that are on the brink of extinction, potentially reaching a threatened status or endangered status. Mm -hmm. Um, And this hopefully expansion of the tool set will be applicable, an applicable concept to other species that may follow the same path as pallid surgeon. And we would then be able to catch those fit or those fish that species um, before it was too late and they were um, extinct. So you're saying then this tool's applicable, you think could be applicable to other species for this set of tools. Yes, I I do think so. That's great. Um, So what's the best thing you could discover relative to this project? Um, I think the best thing that I could discover relative to this project would be a comprehensive tool set that does in fact illustrate um, the health status of a fish. And that is applicable to 
not only a pallid sturgeon, but also the entire sturgeon family. And beyond that, um, all fish. Yeah, I mean, what a great contribution to the profession where, you know, you would, um, you know, provide a, a, a through a publication or your thesis at a minimum, uh, uh, here's a suite of tools that fisheries biologists can go out and use and do a better job of indicating the health status of a, of a species than our kind of traditional ways, which have been measuring length, just length and weight. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And, you know, I think this, uh, I've said this before on this podcast, but um, a lot of times I think students don't understand the ramifications of their projects. I mean, if you come up with this and it's applied worldwide, what a unbelievable contribution to, to, to have that at this stage in your career is very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. No pressure. Yeah. But make sure you get it right. No, <laughs> so um, our last question is kind of a softball question, if you will. Um, and it has to do with what's your favorite animal and plant, or you can just pick one if you want. Okay. okay. So I would probably pick um, the robin as my favorite animal. And um, I, I, it, I realized this recently. <laughs> Because I haven't really seen birds in a long time, yeah. I think, because they're just not around as much in the winter. And I looked out the window and I saw a robin and I was just ecstatic because it was it's spring. The robin's hopefully going to come to my bird feeder. And they used to bathe outside my apartment in South Dakota. Okay. There was just a puddle and yeah. I just, they're great. Okay. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, the, the animals or plants are typically what people are feeling right now. And you're feeling like you need some robins because yeah. that's an indication <laughs> of spring. Yeah. <laughs> get some, get some warmth. How about a plant? You got a favorite plant? Yeah. I think the uh, bristlecone pine ah. would be my favorite plant and no questions that doesn't change over time or based <laughs> on my uh, mindset. Uh, they're a long lived species, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. They're incredibly long lived and, where I used to do research in my undergrad, there was a, the bristlecone pine forest in California mm -hmm. was just down the road from the Barcroft research station. Mm -hmm. And they're just these, you, they're incredible. I can't really describe it any more than incredible. And you don't necessarily understand their presence until you are there in person with mm -hmm. them. They're yeah. just, they're really gnarled and they're curly and they're old and it's just. That it, would be very cool to yeah, see. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you're there's a theme here because pallid sturgeon are very long lived too yeah yeah and so there's that's that's the theme and except for the robin yeah we might have to reevaluate re the robin but that's how you're just feeling today yeah okay um well matea thanks for taking the time to chat with me today and i wish you the best in your studies at montana state university and your research on pallid sturgeon and if you enjoy the podcast, we'd like to hear from you and please share a review. Thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science and please spread the word about this podcast.